0: What's up everybody, you're listening to The Ravens Grove. I'm your host, Dahi, and this is the ninth episode of our segment, Tales of the Unexplained, where I'll be talking about some of the aliens, spirits, semi-mythical creatures, and various other entities that go bump in the night. Today, we're going to be revisiting ancient Greek mythology and taking a look at some of the more well-known ancient Greek cryptids. More specifically, we're going to be looking at five more of some of the most well-known cryptids, monsters, and creatures from ancient Greece. Typhon and Echidna, the father and mother of monsters, the Le- the Sphinx, the Cyclops, and the Lernaean Hydra, otherwise known as just the Hydra. Now a quick disclaimer before I begin. This, uh, this series is comprised of folklore and urban legends. The existence of this, the cryptids featured in these episodes are, as of this recording, currently unconfirmed by the scientific community at large. As such, and in all opinions I may reach in this segment are mine and mine alone unless explicitly stated otherwise. It's quite possible you may have heard different versions of the legends and stories I may retell in this series, so if you feel that the version you've heard or may even have experienced eh, is different to the one I tell, please bear in mind I'm just a storyteller. I will try and cross-reference the different versions of the legends and stories, so if I miss something that you think is important, that's on me. Also, this episode of The Raven's Grove features the following trigger warnings. Buddy Ha mentions animal predatory behavior mentions, being hunted mentions, cannibalism mentions, mutilation mentions, supernatural themes, urban legends, and folklore, as well as potentially frightening stories. So if any of those are in any way an issue for you, please give this episode a miss. Okay, now that those are out of the way, let's get going. So to start off, we actually have a twofer. We've got two monsters that are considered to be the most terrifying creatures in all of Greek mythology. Typhon and Echidna, and no, I'm not talking about the adorable monotreme native to Australia. Typhon is often called the father of monsters in Greek mythology, and his mate, Echidna, is likewise known as the mother of monsters. Now, before we go any further, I should probably give you an idea of what Typhon and Echidna look like. According to Hesiod, Typhon was terrible, outrageous, and lawless, immensely powerful, and on his shoulders were a hundred different snake heads emanated fire and every kind of noise, and I quote, Strength was with his hands in all that he did, and the feet of the strong god were untiring. From his shoulders grew the hundred heads of a snake, a fearful dragon, with dark flickering tongues, and from beneath the brows of his eyes and his marvelous heads flashed fire, and fire burned from his heads as he glared. And there were voices in all his dreadful heads which uttered every kind of sound unspeakable. For at one time they made such sounds as that the gods understood, but at another the sound of a bull bellowing aloud in proud, ungovernable fury, and at another the sound of a lion relentless at heart, and at another sound like whelps, wonderful to hear, and again at another he would hiss so the high mountains re-echoed." Quote. Pretty scary stuff. As for Echidna, Hesiod describes her as a half-beautiful maiden and half-fearsome snake. He described that the goddess Fierce Echidna was a flesh-eating monster, irresistible, who was unlike neither mortal men nor the undying gods, but was, I'm quoting him directly here, half a nymph eh, with glancing eyes and fair cheeks and half again a huge snake, great and awful with speckled skin, who dies not nor grows old all her days, end quote. Hesiod's apparently association with the eating of raw flesh in Echidna's snake half suggests that he may have supposed that Echidna's snake ended, a snake half ended with a snake head. Aristophanes, from the late 5th century BCE, who makes her a denizen of the underworld, gives Echidna a hundred heads, presumably snake heads, then matching the hundred heads that Hesiod said her mate Typhon had. In the Orphic account, Echidna is described as having the head of a beautiful woman with long hair and a serpent's body from the neck down. Nonus in his Dionysiaca, uh, sorry if I butchered that pronunciation, by the way, I don't speak Greek, uh, it describes Echidna as being hideous with horrible poison. As you can see, these two are pretty terrifying to look at, but just because something isn't foul to see doesn't mean it's inherently bad. I mean, look at Bulldogs, they're not going to be weighing any beauty prizes, but they are adorable dogs. Unfortunately, in the case of Typhon and Echidna, they are evil to the core, and their union produced several monstrous offspring. The first was Orthros, the two-haired dog who gu- guarded the cattle of The second child was Cerberus, otherwise known as Kerberos, who is a three-headed hound who stands guard over the entrance to the Underworld. Child number three was a Linnaean Hydra, otherwise known as the Hydra, and don't worry, I'll be talking more about that particular creature later in this episode. Now, most of the earlier accounts, Typhon and Echidna only had the three kids, but there are quite a few later accounts that say that Typhon and Echidna were also the parents of the Chimera, the Sphinx, she's next scripted out to Typhon and Echidna, don't worry, the Nemean Lion, the Caucasian Eagle, Laidon the Dragon, the Chromo- Chromionian Sow. I hope I pronounced that right, the Gorgon Medusa, the Colchian Dragon, and the monstrous being known as Sela. So now... All of those are apparently canon in the latest stories, but in the earlier stories, it's just the three, so for the sake of this episode, I'm going to be assuming that all of the ones I just listed off, from the Chimera down to Scylla, are all, technically speaking, part of the family of Typhon and Echidna. Now, Typhon and Echidna both sided with Kronos and the Titans during the war against the Olympians, and as such, they lost, and they lost badly. Typhon, in particular, was renowned for being the strongest of all the Titans. And so, as a result, he tried going up against Zeus on with his master Thunderbolt. That Zeus was armed with his master Thunderbolt, that is. And, well, he got soundly beaten by Zeus. Like, really badly. It was pretty pretty horrific what Zeus did to him. As a result, as punishment, really, they were both thrown into Tartarus. Both Typhon and Echidna, thrown into Tartarus. And, apparently, there they remain to this day. However, the gods realized that some of their children could actually be useful in what they wanted to do, so they left them alive. Now, Ancient Greek cryptid number two is a Sphinx. Now, most people will probably have seen photos of the Sphinx at Giza in Egypt, and it is true that there are many different regional variations of a Sphinx, but for the sake of this episode, we're going to be talking about the Ancient Greek version. But before I go any further, I should probably give you a description of what a Sphinx is. Well, according to various ancient mythologies, a Sphinx is a hybrid creature with the body of a big cat, usually that of a lion, and the head of some other creature. Most often the head of that other creature is that of a human, but I've seen Egyptian Sphinxes with heads of rams or birds of prey. Some depictions of Sphinxes, like the Greek or Mesopotamian version, also show them possessing wings similar to that of a griffon, or the Lion of St. Mark, if you're familiar with Catholic iconography, but this is not found in every regional variation, so it really depends on what version of a Sphinx you're looking at. One of the other major or regional variations is the related to the head of the Sphinx. More different, more specifically, is to do with the human-headed Sphinxes and the presented gender of that human head. In Egyptian and Mesopotamian Sphinxes, if the the head of the Sphinx is a human, that part is nearly always male-presenting, and is very often shown with ceremonial beards commonly found in depictions of royalties in those respective cultures. However, in the Greek versions, the human-headed Sphinxes nearly always have a female-presenting head, and to drive home the point even further, uh, there are numerous depictions of Greek Sphinxes with female-presenting heads and breasts. In all versions of the Sphinx, however, they are considered to be extremely dangerous. But not all of them are considered to be actively malevolent towards humans, and this is the really big difference between Near Eastern Sphinxes, by which I mean Sphinxes found in Egypt and Mesopotamia, and Classical Sphinxes, Sphinxes of Greece and Rome. You see, the Greek Sphinx, as depicted in the legend of Oedipus, is actively malevolent towards humans, but also operates under strict code of behavior that gives her prey a chance to escape unharmed. And I'll get to that part in a minute. In contrast. The Egyptian and Mesopotamian Sphinxes, while admittedly just as deadly as their Greek counterparts, are actually guardians, and they often were flanking the entrances to temples, protecting uh, people from demons. So, while they were certainly dangerous, they weren't necessarily evil. Anyways, let's talk about the Greek Sphinx. See, in Greek mythology, there was only one Sphinx, and she has quite the story to tell. Apollodorus describes her as being the daughter of Typhon and Echidna, and as we know, those two were bad news. Now, according to the story of Oedipus, the Sphinx was said to guard the, city in the entrance to the city of Thebes, and if anyone wanted to enter the city, they had to answer her riddle. Now, the earlier recorded references to the Sphinx agree that she asked people a riddle, but the exact riddle itself in the earliest version of the story has been lost to the ties of time. The modern world does have the version of the riddle from Laetitia's story, but it's very possible that the earlier version of the story could have a completely different riddle to the one that we know today. In the later accounts, it was said that either, either Hera or Ares sent the Sphinx from Ethiopia to Thebes in Greece, where she asked people quite possibly the most well-known riddle in history. What, has, what creature has one voice, four feet in the morning, two feet at noon, but three feet in the evening? If the answer you gave her to that riddle was incorrect, she would strangle you and devour your corpse. If you did not answer at all, she would let you walk away unscathed, but she would not let you pass. And apparently, no one had ever answered that riddle correctly, so it was really those two options. The answer to the riddle, of course, is a man. You see, a man, I'm using the generic term man in this context to refer to anyone human here, so please don't get offended. A man has one voice, crawls on all fours as a baby, walks on two legs as an adult, and walks with a cane towards the end of their life. Oedipus figured out that answer, and in most versions of the story, that was that. However, some accounts of the Oedipus legend state that there was a second riddle that Oedipus had to answer. Uh, The second riddle goes as follows. There are two sisters. One gives birth to the other and she in turn gives birth to the first. Who are the two sisters? Now the answer to this one is actually that the two sisters are night and day. For the record, in ancient Greek, both the terms for night and day are feminine in nature, and so according to most of the accounts, upon being defeated in the riddle contest, the Sphinx threw herself from a high rock and died, but in some versions of the story, Oedipus then had to best the Sphinx in combat. In still others versions of the story, the the Sphinx devoured herself upon being best in the riddle Contest. The point is, Oedipus won, and, well, that was the end of the story for the Sphinx. Not the end of the story for Oedipus, if you want to read into that story, that's your call. It's a great read, but it can get kind of disturbing, especially for a modern audience, so be warned. Now for cryptid number three. And this scripted is relatively unique in greek mythology as not only are they a race of what sometimes are considered monsters they are in some forms also the child the children of major olympians and they played a vital role in the olympians war against the titans i'm talking about the cyclopses first things first descriptions the cyclopses which is the plural of the word cyclops are gigantic humanoid creatures that only have one eye, located in the very center of their forehead. Now, according to Hesiod, there are three Cyclopses, Brontes, Steropes, and Arges, all of whom are sons of Uranus and Gaia, who are which make them basically the... I guess you could say almost siblings to the Titans and therefore uncles to the Olympians, if you follow that type of creation story. Now, in Hesiod's version, the three Cyclopses were siblings to the Titans, as I just said, but they had been imprisoned unfairly by their father, Uranus. Zeus freed them, and in return, they forged a number of weapons and tools for the gods. Zeus's master Thunderbolt, Poseidon's Trident, and Hades's Helm of Invisibility. Now, to put it in perspective, these are symbols that are, in ancient Greek society, they were synonymous with those gods. I mean, Zeus's thunderbolt is seen in every depiction of him. Tr- Poseidon's trident, thanks to the Percy Jackson series, is one of the most instantly recognizable pieces of ancient Greek iconography on, on the planet at the moment. And Hades's Helm of Invisibility invis- allowed him to teleport, allowed him to become one with the shadows, essentially granted him omniscience, in that he could see and hear everything that was being done in the shadows. That is a pretty terrifying weapon for the god of death to have. Now, with these weapons at their command, the Olympians overthrew the Titans and the Cyclopses were eventually given the role of being a vices assistant in his forge underneath the waves. However, in Homer's Odyssey, the Cyclopses are sons of Poseidon, but they are uh, uncultured shepherds, still gigantic one-eyed humanoids, but without any skill in the forge at all. Instead, they are savages, living on milk, cheese, the meat of the sheep they keep and on the flesh of anyone who sails near their homes in Sicily. In the Odyssey, Odysseus and his men are captured by the Cyclops Polyphemus, and it is only by some very quick thinking, and by blinding Polyphemus in his sleep with a burning ship's mast, that Odysseus and the remainder of his men were able to escape. Now, there are many different theories as to where the myth of the Cyclopses actually came from, and there is a possibility that's very similar to the origins of what dragons may have come from, which is that the ancient Greeks may have found fossils of certain animals, and decided that these were actual monsters that lived in the past. See, there's a theory that dragons were actually based on the ancient peoples of the world discovering fossils of like giant snakes or of dinosaurs and thinking, oh my gods, these are literally like dragons. In response, in a similar vein, there is a theory that the Cyclopses could actually have been inspired by the skulls of elephants or mammoths that the ancient Greeks have found fossilized in the the ground. Now the thing is, if you look at an elephant skull, it does have a big cavity right in what we would consider to be the forehead. Uh, I'd advise you to actually look up, and go to your local zoo and look at the elephant itself, or to look up online that what an elephant's skull actually looks like, because I'm not doing you any favors by describing it. But it's very easy to see that if you were an ancient being, and you didn't know what an elephant looked like, or you'd never have a mammoth, it's very theoretically possible that this could have been the inspiration for a cyclops. So... Yeah, I mean, it's a definite possibility. I mean, we we won't know for sure ever, but it's, an, it's a theory that I believe has some quite a bit of credit to it. So maybe form your own conclusions on it, but well you have my recommendations. Now, our final credit today is one that's synonymous with an ever-changing, indestructible foe, and that is the Hydra. Now the Hydra, according to the Greek myths, was a terrible water serpent, or dragon, with anywhere between 7 and 50 heads, and each time one of those heads was cut off, two more grew from the stump in its place. Now the Hydra is most famous in Greek mythology for being the offspring of Typhon and Echidna, and also for being the second of the Twelve Labors of Heracles, known to the Romans, and more commonly to the modern world, as Hercules. Now, like I said, the modern world knows him as Hercules, because that's what the name the Romans gave him, but I'm kind of a stickler about this stuff, so I'm going to be calling him Heracles. Now, a bit of context here Heracles was a illegitimate son between Zeus and a mortal woman. And as such, Hera, Zeus's godly wife, had a serious vendetta against Heracles. Like, she sent snakes to strangle him in his crib, Heracles broke their necks while still a baby. So, yeah, and the point is, she had a grudge against him all his life. And so. She, Heracles was gifted with extreme strength and near-invulnerability, because he was a demigod, but he also had a serious problem with drinking. And Hera basically put him into a berserker frenzy when he got drunk, and forced him to, in that rage, kill his own family. Now, when that was done, she snapped him out of it, but the damage was already done, he was labelled as a murderer, as punishment. He had to undergo 12 tasks, 12 impossible tasks that no one else had been able to perform, and these became known as the 12 labors to Heracles. Now, the story of the 12 labors is that King Eurystheus, who was the king of the tyrants, who basically was the guy assigning the labors to Heracles, he sent Heracles to slay say the Hydra, which Hera had actually raised just to slay Heracles. That was his whole purpose, was to kill Heracles. Now, upon, uh, the Hydra apparently could spit poison at you, its very presence was like a noxious fume that would poison anything near it. It was toxic just to be in its presence, let alone being bitten or being spat on it. It was bad, bad news. Now, upon uh, reaching the swamp near Lake Lerna, where the hydra dealt, the Heracles covered his mouth and nose with a cloth to protect himself from the poisonous fumes. He shot flaming arrows into the Hydra's lair, the spring of Amimoni, the deep cave from which it emerged only to terrorize neighboring villages. He then confronted the Hydra, wielding either a harvesting sickle, according to some early vase, vase paintings, a sword, or his famed club. Now, the catonic creature's reaction to the decapitation attempt was fairly epic. I mean, two, grew, two heads grew back from the stump, which for anyone else would have been a struggle for uh, of the hopelessness. But for, Her- for Heracles, it was, well, it was just another challenge he had to overcome. Now, the weakness of the Hydra was it was invulnerable only if it retained at least one head. If it retained at least one head, it could not be killed. If you took out all the heads, it would die. Problem is, if this thing's growing more heads than you can count by chopping your head off, it's going to take a while to do that. Now, the details of the struggle are explicit in what is known as the Bibliotheca. Realizing he could not defeat the Hydra by conventional means, Heracles called on his nephew Iolaus for help. His nephew came up with the idea, possibly inspired by Athena, of using a firebrand to scorch the neck stumps after each decapitation. Some sources say that Heracles actually lit his club on fire to cauterize a wound. Others say that was like a branding iron that people would use on livestock. But the point is that they used a red-hot burning a, a object to cauterize the stumps. Now, seeing that Heracles was in the struggle, Hera sent a giant crab to distract him, but Heracles just crushed it under his foot. The Hydra's one immortal head was cut off by a golden sword given to Heracles by Athena. Heracles placed the head, still alive and writhing, under a great rock in the, on the sacred way between Lerna and Eleus, and dipped his arrows in the Hydra's poisonous blood, and thus the second task was complete. Now, here's where it gets weird. The alternate version of the myth says that after cutting off one head, he then dipped his sword in the neck and uses venom to burn back each head so we can go back. Hera upset that Heracles had slain the beast she raised to kill him, placed it in the dark blue vault of the sky as a constellation Hydra, and she then turned the crab into the constellation Cancer. However, when Heracles and his nephew came to say, okay, Hydra's killed, you can go through now, the guy who Hera had actually sent to in a sense, adjudicate whether or not the task had been completed, said, no, nope, sorry, you got outside help from this one, you have to take it and do another two tasks. Now, this is considered to be a almost like a bridging mechanism in the storytelling between the earlier reports, which only have 10 tasks that Heracles had to perform, and the later stories, which had 12. So, in the earlier stories, we can assume that the... the the gang outside help for this was technically allowed whereas in the later stories you had to do it so because of that well i don't really know i mean we don't have complete sources for a lot of ancient greek texts. for all we know it could have been one way it could have been the other i also am not in a position to say but one thing i do want to talk about is the modern day depiction of hydras specifically in pop culture now if you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you'll know I'm a pretty big geek, and, well, one of the big geek icons in modern-day pop culture is the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Marvel movies. Now, if you're familiar with them, you'll know the Hydra is a essentially a Nazi organization set up in World War II that was all about developing technology. It's a major part of the first the Captain America films, and, well, I don't want to spoil too much of it, but let's just say that they are bad, bad news. Now, the thing is, a Hydra in the Marvel Universe, they have a very distinctive emblem. It's a skull with tentacles coming off it, or not like, kind of like Cthulhu crossed with a spider, I guess you could say, but the thing is, that's not what a Hydra actually is. A Hydra is a dragon or a snake that's got all these different heads, so by that logic, it's not accurate, and that, for me, is something that I really find annoying about the Marvel movies, is it if I mean, I get that this is something that goes back to the comics, and by that logic, Stanley and Steve Ditko, or Stanley and Jack Kirby, depending on who actually created Hydra, they have a lot of answering to do in terms of getting the details right, and not just about Captain America. Like the Thor movies got, and Thor comics got a lot of things wrong compared to the myths. But the point I'm making here is that if they were really serious about making a Hydra. It would be almost like the symbol of the dragon from Game of Thrones. It would be a multi-headed snake or dragon, not a skull with all these tentacles coming off it. You see what I mean? Anyway, that's all we have time for today, folks. Thanks for listening to the Raven's Grove. I've been Dahi. You've been awesome. I'll talk to you in the next episode. See ya.